Before we begin today's episode, we'd like to thank our corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, for their generous support. Fiduciary Trust International helps families with significant wealth manage that wealth and the complexities that come with it across the generations. Building your legacy is about more than just managing your investments. Fiduciary Trust International helps you look at your wealth holistically today and plan effectively for your future. They will help you structure your wealth so you can enjoy it now and provide maximum benefit to your heirs and the causes you care about. If you're looking for trust, estate, and advanced tax planning services to help you grow and protect your wealth, check out Fiduciary Trust International at fiduciarytrust.com. Quiz time. What is the group of 19th century Russian composers made up of Mili Balakirev, Cesar Kui, Modest Mazorsky, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, and Alexander Borodin, who worked to create a Russian sound in opera? Find out on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is made possible via generous funding from its corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, and support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. Interested in learning more about opera? Look no further than the Metropolitan Opera Guild's virtual courses. Presented through the virtual learning platform Thinkific, with these self-paced courses, you can expand your operatic knowledge from anywhere. Get started with our Opera 101 bundle, exploring the history of opera, musical terms, and different voice types. Or delve deeper with our courses on score reading, conducting, operatic singing, Verdi, Wagner, Maria Callas, and more. To start exploring and register for a course, visit metguild.thinkific.com. If you guessed the Russian Five, also known as the Mighty Handful or the Mighty Five, you are correct. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we have the last of three episodes exploring how the operatic canon is being expanded, featuring Guild lecturer Matthew Timmermans. In this final episode, he will dive into how the Met's production of foreign works, such as Shostakovich's Lady Macbeth of Mitsensk and Benjamin Britten's Peter Grimes, have expanded the boundaries of the canon. So first, we're going to talk about Russian opera. Now, an important figure in Russian opera who has sort of been brought into this history through recent scholarship is Catherine II, or better known as Catherine the Great. And actually, when she was empress of Russia, she hired lots of composers who would then set her own texts, her own libretti, to music. And typically, these would be Italian composers. So they'd be schooled in Italian forms and sound much more like what we'd expect. Obviously, this is around the time of Mozart, but a little bit earlier. And so you would kind of hear music that you'd expect of Mozart as opposed to what we might come to expect now as a Russian style. It was not until the 19th century that we had a composer from Russia that would become internationally renowned and exported. And this would be uh, Mikhail Glinka. 
who was actually trained across Europe. So he left Russia and did a, a huge journey through, I mean, it was through Germany, it was through Italy. I don't know if he quite, I believe he also went to France a little bit. And then he went back. And what he did was he took up, learned a lot about Western opera and then brought it back to Russia and wanted to make a Russian idiom out of it. What this ended up turning out to be was a very traditionally Western-sounding opera. But then he would sort of add what people hear as exotic idioms or folk idioms to it. I wanted to give you a little example from his most famous opera, which is The Life of the Tsar. And in this opera, we have a lot of sort of pastoral settings to give that, that, that uh, evoking this sort of rustic past of Russia. And one of the characters that does this is uh, Antonida. And so here's her entrance aria where she's sort of out in the fields and singing. What I hear and what generally scholars hear is it's a typical bel canto opera. So because this was written in the early 19th century, this is when like people like Bellini were writing, Rossini as well as Donizetti. So you're going to hear lots of coloratura. It's quite rangy for the soprano. But then at the same time, there's kind of a folkiness to it, which is what people read as Russian. Although I will give you a secret hint, there is folkiness also in some Donizetti operas, which are trying to evoke that pastoral quality. So it is thoroughly Western, but because he was Russian, it was read as Russian. So then we move on into the 19th century where we start to have the burgeoning Russian opera scene. And pivotal figures in this are Mussorgsky, who some of you may have saw his Boris Grudnov, I, think, I believe it was last season. And then we also have Tchaikovsky, who I'm sure many of you have seen either his own Yegin or most recently it was the Picadama was performed here. So anyway, the first person I want to talk about is Mussorgsky. There became this sort of battle over what Russian opera has to sound like. It had to sound different than Western idioms because Russia had to differentiate itself from these other European powers. Much like German opera at this time was trying to differentiate itself from Italian opera as well as French opera. And so how exactly did they do this? Well, for Mussorgsky, who was part of what they were called the Mighty Handful or the Mighty Five, a bunch of composers who were trying to create this Russian sound, which for most of them turned into opera. What Mussorgsky was doing was he was focusing on the text, and he really wanted, when his singers were singing, for the melody to sound like idiomatic Russian. So that's how he kind of constructed his melodies in his opera, which for those of you who saw Boris Gudnov, it sounds a lot like recitative. It sounds very like talking speech over pitch. But this was for him what sounded like the natural rhythms of speech and equated it into opera. I have a clip next for us just to get a little sound of that, and then we'll compare it with what Tchaikovsky did. 
This clip is from Boris Gudnov, and this is when Boris at the end goes mad over the fact that he killed the original heir to the throne, and he then took the throne, and so he, he has now gone mad over the, that act that he did. <laughs> Tchaikovsky, on the other hand, more inherited Glinka's mantle, where he brings a lot of this Italian melody into his operas. And frankly, it's a lot less jarring for audiences to go see a Tchaikovsky opera because it sounds traditionally what we would expect of seeing an opera of the 19th century, something like by Verdi, for example. So what we're going to hear here is just a brief clip from the end of Onyegin. This is the duet at the very end between when Onyegin once again wants to have the heart and hand of Tatiana, and Tatiana turns him down now that she married another man. Oh, 
So this brings us to our sort of star of the moment today, which is Dmitry Shostakovich. And why I sort of told you about Russian opera history was because I wanted to give you an idea of how the Russian opera canon has grown. And obviously from that, you can tell which operas have slowly made their way into the Western canon, so much so that they've been performed at the Met, and also some of those that haven't, like Glinka, for example. So Shostakovich comes out of this lineage. It's growing. We now have an interest in America, especially of having these Russian operas come over. And Shostakovich is a, an exciting example for them because not only is he he's a symphonic composer, which he was primarily known for before his operas, and then he was also a film composer, which was, again, another burgeoning art form at this time, or theatrical art form. Unlike Tchaikovsky's Onyegin, which quite readily and very quickly entered the Western canon, some of you might probably know that Shostakovich's Lady Macbeth did not so. And it took a lot longer, obviously, by the amount of performances that happened at the Met, to be incorporated into the Western canon. And so what we're kind of exploring today is why exactly that was. To me, what has happened, it's music being inaccessible and more so about the politics that surrounded its creation and then its further performance thereafter. So a little bit about the important actor in this, which is obviously Russia becoming the Soviet Union in 1922. And it became communist at this time, which for in America was a very controversial topic. It was very scary in some ways, but also for some Americans, there was a lot of possibility there, possibility that could change and make America for the better. And then there was a lot of the in-between. <laughs> so we'll see that a lot of those ideas come to bear on Lady Macbeth, which was sort of supposed to be an exemplar of the communist aesthetic. In 1924, another important actor in our story here is Joseph Stalin, who takes over communist Russia. So at the time, what opera was supposed to do was it was supposed to conform to the ideas of communism. And what that meant was making art for the masses instead of it being an elite art form anymore. And so at this time, of course, though, no one exactly necessarily knew how to do that because opera generally was, while it could be for some masses, it was generally for the, uh, possibly the middle class at this time, but mostly for the upper classes. So it's how do we make this accessible now to everybody? And composers and audiences are currently figuring it, this out, and Shostakovich becomes a prime example of how maybe we could do this. Americans were excited about this. They saw this as a possibility of creating a new kind of opera and a new kind of classical music. What could that possibly be? So again, eyes were on Shostakovich. Another thing that the Americans were tantalized by, they were tantalized by this idea of opera being propaganda. They're kind of like, what could that mean? Because a lot of, again, the ideas around the communist state was how were people's minds being changed by the government, right, and being controlled. And so they were curious at how art, something that before this was seen as sort of this autonomous thing, beyond, like beyond politics, you went and you escaped, right? How could it now be about teaching us to be a part of this new government state? So why was Shostakovich so important in this sort of narrative? Well, American pro-Soviets saw him as a modernist composer trained as classical forms. So he had this rich past into the classical tradition. And then they were curious how he could meld that now with composing art for the masses. This big question. For Americans looking on at communist Russia at the, at the time, it was unclear where this was going to lead yet. So as I mentioned, while there was a lot of anxiety about it, there was also hope that this could be something more fair in the future, especially given America's history and politics. And so for Americans, the choice of musical and style wasn't yet limited to political message. They said, oh, this could be something new. This could be something interesting. For them, it appeared that Soviet composers were free to compose however they like and however they would want to carry their message to the masses. So this enters our main opera for talking about Russian opera, which is Lady Macbeth of Mitsenk. 
So the opera premiered in 1934 in St. Petersburg, which was really the cultural center of Russia at this time. And then it came to America in 1935. So quite quickly, Americans were very excited to hear this. They clearly were open now at this time to hear Russian opera. And Shostakovich, by this time, was seen as a Soviet figurehead. They expected him to be upholding Soviet values. So what's the plot of Lady Macbeth of Mitsenk? So Katerina is bored with her life and as well as her marriage. And what she ends up doing is having an affair with a workman who works for her husband, and his name is Sergei. In Act 2, she is, of course, caught with her lover, Sergei. And so being caught, what she does is she poisons the person that caught them, which is the father of her husband. And then after that, the body, or the fa- then after that, they're caught again by her husband. And so then they strangle her husband. So two murders in Act 2. So then in Act 3, Katerina and Sergei think they're off the hook, so they get married. Of course, that's not the case because someone finds the husband's body, and then they get caught and <coughs> captured by the police. Then in Act 4, naturally, they've been sentenced to Siberia, as one is back in the 19th century. And on the way to Siberia, Sergei is found flirting with another woman, or at least that woman's flirting with him. I mean, we generally throughout the opera know that Sergei is not all he seems cracked up to be and is not the greatest human being. I should qualify that. And so Katerina gets jealous, uh, jealous and also, I mean, rightfully so. And so she takes her rival and tries to drown her and and simultaneously ends up drowning herself as they're marching towards Siberia. So Shostakovich himself knew that this opera was going to be important as a Soviet opera. And so what were some of the ways that he was trying to cast it so that it seemed to show these ideals of being art for the masses? Well, for one, he was emphasizing a new sort of lyrical and natural style, one that would be accessible. And he particularly wanted to put Lady Macbeth in contrast to his earlier opera, which is The Nose. The Nose was a sort of comic, absurdist opera that Shostakovich wrote many years before. And it's definitely, it's a lot more in the trend of modernist opera at the time. So think kind of, it's not atonal, but it's far more dissonant, definitely less melodic. And you don't necessarily have a female character that you're really sort of rooting for through her love story as you would in typical opera. Instead, you're following a man who has lost his nose, which is absurdist, obviously, and leads to a bunch of ridiculous situations. Um, But it's not the typical thing you're looking for in an opera at that time. That's all. So here I have just a little excerpt from the preface for Lady Macbeth, which is where Shostakovich tried to explain how this opera was going to be different. So he said, I have tried to make the musical language of the opera maximally simple and expressive, I cannot agree with those theories, which at one time were quite widespread in our country, that in the new opera, the vocal line should be absent, or that this line is nothing other than a conversation in which intonation should be emphasized. Opera is first and foremost a vocal artwork, and singers must occupy themselves with their primary obligation, which is to sing, not to converse, to claim, or intone. So we already see him situating himself in these two directions we saw Russian opera taking in the 19th century, right? We have Mussorgsky, who is a little... I mean, there's melody there, obviously, but it's a little less so than we would be used to in 19th century opera versus Tchaikovsky, who is obviously some might call the king of melody in Russian opera. Just to give you a little idea for those who haven't seen the nose, here is a clip in the nose where what you're going to notice, while in the background, some of the music that's happening in the environment can be melodic, the main singer who is, you know, decrying the fact that he's chasing his nose and it's eluding him, it's very speech-like and kind of like he's having a discussion. Let's see. 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 Let's see.
I mean, at least to me, there's reminiscences here of that German modernist tradition, things you see in Alban Berg. So then instead in Lady Macbeth, we have Shostakovich trying to go for this ex simple expressive idiom. I want to prepare you because of course this is still the 20th century, so it sounds somewhat dissonant, but you will notice that it is definitely more melodic than what we heard in the last clip, but it is obviously still not Verdi, which is absolutely fine. So in this next clip, we're seeing scene one where we're first meeting Katarina and we're seeing that she's very bored with her life and her husband. She's at the window looking out and thinking introspectively about the fact that this is where her life has led. And then I will note these clips I've taken from a film that was made of this opera later in the 1960s that I'll get to. But the performer in it is uh, Galina Vishnevskaya, who is a very important and famous Russian soprano who did come over, was one of the first to come over to America during when Russians finally leaving communist Russia. And it was very exciting for Americans to hear Vishnevskaya because she was this sort of breath of fresh air and could interpret these operas much better than Americans could, for example, and is still looking back an absolute fantastic performer. So I'm glad I get to share that with you. So how do we suddenly get more of these ideas revolving around Lady Macbeth, how it's supposed to sound like a Soviet opera? Well, as I mentioned, Shostakovich said lots about it. In 1934, he issued uh, an article in Modern Music. So Katerina, in the original text that it's based on, it wasn't quite sympathetic toward her. She was, I mean, it's hard to make a, a character sympathetic who ends up murdering several people in order to have an affair, right? In the original text, it was done in a a typical Russian tradition that was happening at the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century, which was this sort of clinical way of talking about it, uh, talking about it like a series of vignettes and episodes in which it was spoken like uh, reading a prescription or something like that. So there's this big distance between it, and that was a popular style at the time. Shostakovich clearly is not doing that in this opera. He draws us into Lady Macbeth and makes her a much more sympathetic character, if we can call her that. And so part of doing this, what, how this at least, Shostakovich explained this with regard to the Soviet mission, was that Katerina becomes a sympathetic figure because she's a woman that belongs to a merchant class, which is hard, greedy, and small. And so it's showing how she herself ends up fighting against what will become represented as the corrupt bourgeois society. So the, the, the corrupt bourgeois society, which we'll see in characters like her husband, I guess partially as well Sergei, as well as her husband's father, that she is sort of working against in which obviously communist Russia itself was trying to dissipate this bourgeois society, right? So how he was going to show this musically was by showing the inner nature of the characters with his music. So thus, someone like Sergei, who is our distrustful lover, 
his music ends up being described as insincere, showy, and theatrical, as opposed to Katarina, who is shown, as we saw in that last clip, as lyrical, tender, and warm. So that's how we know we're supposed to like her character versus all the other ones are supposed to be seen as sort of facile. And once again, we have the propaganda that the Americans were so excited to read into this opera. One of the ways we see this is also through the contrast of violence and satire in this opera. So what we're often going to see is a moment of incredible violence happen in the opera, and that happens in a very naturalistic and what some critics would describe as primitivistic way in the score with lots of basically banging, clanging, and for some sex scenes, some swooping trombones, some very literal, we say literal now, but sounds that are associated with certain acts. So whooping trombones obviously being things like sex, for example. And so then these would often move in directly into moments of satire in which it's satirizing these characters that are supposed to represent the corrupt bourgeois society that we're not supposed to like, as opposed to Katerina. In Act 1, we have when Sergei and Katerina are caught together. Sergei is caught leaving by Katerina's husband's father. He catches him, and then basically with the help of a bunch of men, ends up flogging him, and then calls down Katerina to watch it so that she can be basically horrified by it. And so then after Katrina, he demands that Katrina feed him. And so then she ends up poisoning his mushrooms. And a, a comical because it's slightly ridiculous, but the music is, is not yet super comical. But anyway, she poisons him with these mushrooms. And then as he's dying, he's dying on stage and basically tries to figures out and tries to point out that it was Katrina that poisoned him. But then Katrina absolves herself by convincing the masses that it was not the case and that mushrooms can sometimes just be poisonous. And then we have the priest come in in an incredibly satiristic scene where he sort of does this, basically a jig that travesties his own repute. Oh, my God. 
anyway, so we have that, which, I mean, you could hear the sort of the metronomic clicking in the orchestra, which is supposed to be representing him blogging Saturday. In this next clip, so we've got to the point that Katrina's husband has been poisoned, and then he is now died now, and then we have this satirization of the priest that occurs after. It's only Katarina who sort of gets these lyrical outpourings. We're supposed to be drawn into her psychological world and once again sympathize with the fact that she's felt the need to commit these heinous crimes. So her lyrical outpourings might be described as needy, in touch with a deeper truth, and also confessional, which is something none of the other characters exactly get. So this is one of the remarkable achievements of the piece, which is where we get this incredibly flawed character, which we're going to explore another incredibly flawed character after, which is obviously Peter Grimes, and where Shostakovich sort of insulates her with the music and nonetheless draws us through the story, where at the end we do feel sad for the fact that she ends up dying. So I wanted to play another one of these lyrical outpouring moments, and this is later in Act One, where Katerina is once again bemoaning the fact that she's trapped with this husband that she does not love, and then after this is when Sergei comes into her room and they have intercourse, or as some other productions have shown it, possibly rape happens at this moment. It's up to interpretation, apparently. So here, though, is her lyrical outpourings before that. Oh, 
did Americans respond to this this opera, which is obviously clearly shocking in its own right, but then it's packaged with all of this Soviet propaganda, shall we say. So number one, it's worth noting that this was, again, the first Soviet opera to gain major critical attention. So people were excited about it and they had a lot to say about it. Reactions generally, unsurprisingly, uh, had to do with people's political leanings. So those in America who were pro-Soviet, unsurprisingly, they loved the opera. But what might be surprising is that more mainstream critics who are clearly in between, not necessarily saying it's bad or good, they generally found Lady Macbeth to be very entertaining and dramatically very effective. So most accepted the presentation of the opera as mild Soviet propaganda. They didn't see it as something that it had to not be performed as a result of that. And once again, the reason that they saw these leanings in the opera was because Shostakovich wrote so many of these articles that people read and then went to the opera and wanted to read all of those meanings into the opera themselves. Well, so now we're going to come to some of the critics who did not like the opera. So in 1935, there was a review in the New York Sun that called it pornophony because of the very violent music, but also the very sexual music that is in it, and particularly the naturalistic way that sex scenes were sort of mirrored. Another criticism that also happened toward Strauss's Rosenkavalier in that first introduction scene where it's supposed to be the lovemaking between Octavian and the Marshallin. Igor Stravinsky, who is a very famous uh, 20th century composer who also wrote an opera, The Rake's Progress, he described it as lamentably provincial, also considering the musical portrayal primitively realistic. One of the more interesting contributors to this discussion was Alan Downs, who some of you may know, he was a major critic for the New York Times in the early 20th century, a music critic. And so he also disliked these naturalistic sounds, considering them just simply too obvious. It, it didn't you know, bring us to a new realm in music. He was definitely someone who liked his Tchaikovsky in, in Russian opera. And so he generally blamed these naturalistic sounds on the attempt to make it a propagandistic opera. And so what he has to say about it is on this occasion, an opera with a musical score that's flimsily put together, full of reminiscences and obvious and shallow tricks with almost no originality or creative quality attached to a libretto of communist hue, lurid, overdrawn, naive, and sensational, had an immense success. And what he's pointing out at the end there is that audiences seem to enjoy it. Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, maybe we do like a bit of violence and a bit of uh, sensationalism and also a bit of literalism in our, in our music. It perhaps was accessible. So I just to give you one of the scenes that they're referring to and that I keep referring to. This is the, as I mentioned, after that lyrical moment that Katarina talks about despairing and having no love in her life. She then gets a visit by Sergei the workman, who she has wrestled before with earlier in the scene in order to save another woman from being sexually assaulted by the other workmen. Anyway, we have this scene where they come together and consummate their relationship.
So then this comes to one of the more interesting historical turns of fate, which is when Lady Macbeth was actually denounced by what was called Pravda, which is a communist party magazine. And it was called Muddle Instead of Music. Now, why was this so surprising? Well, it's because everyone in America, at least, and I mean, generally Shostakovich was also sort of alluding to the fact that this was a Soviet opera. It was supposed to be giving not only these ideas of art for the masses, but criticizing corrupt bourgeois society. And then suddenly you have a magazine that's supposed to be the voice of Stalin in a way come out and basically say that this is this is not Soviet opera. What are you talking about? So suddenly it's being everything for what Americans saw as being Soviet about it was just criticized and is clearly not the case. What was in the opera, what was criticized was the person wrote that due to the opera's deliberately dissonant, quacking, hooting, panting, grinding, squealing, and the, also the unembarrassed licentious plot. These were all the reasons that the opera was simply not appropriate as a Soviet opera. And it's funny because a lot of these, especially the, the, the connotation of dissonance, seems to be suggesting that it wasn't as accessible as Shostakovich was saying he wanted it to be. Another thing that's interesting about this is that The Nose, which was premiered earlier, was clearly more inaccessible, at least to me, right? It had less melody in it. I mean, I guess the plot was a little more ridiculous, so that made it easier. So the plot aside, but it's just interesting that this article came down attacking the music and yet didn't go after The Nose at all. So it just becomes clear that this is all part of a sort of a political, no, I don't want to say political game, but there is um, political intrigue behind it in what is wanting to be portrayed. And it does seem a bit strange. Now, why this gets even more alarming during this time is that from 1934 to 1939, this was the Great Purge in Russia, where Stalin was getting uh, rid of many of his detractors by sending them to Siberia. And so you can imagine at this time, Shostakovich was a little bit worried after being criticized in a magazine, basically saying that you've created opera that is inappropriate, that he could also be one of these people. Thankfully, he was not the case, but something to consider in the history of communist Russia. All right. How did Americans respond to this suddenly once all of their beliefs were just thrown upside down? Well, they were shocked, especially because all the things they criticized, such as those naturalistic elements, which they all thought were propagandistic, turned out, according to Stalin at least, not to be so. And what happened here was basically that Americans started to reevaluate their opinion of Shostakovich, because before they saw Shostakovich as this leader of the Soviet nation through music and as an international ambassador for it. And now it becomes unclear what actually is the position of a Soviet artist anymore, because he clearly wasn't doing it right. Before they thought these artists had absolute freedom, right? They were, they were creating whatever this Soviet image was supposed to be in music. But now it was clear they didn't have absolute freedom. And so what does that mean now for artists writing for the government? Um, and so these were things that people were, again, thinking now about, can there, just, can there be this division between government and music or art in general? I think it's interesting, once again, to come back to Allen Downs' response to this. <laughs> so for Allen Downs, he thought this was great. He was like, oh, look, the Soviets agree with me. I completely hated these naturalistic aspects. I'm so glad that they also understand that. And so for Allen Downs, he was rather bafflingly like, oh, this is an opportunity for new free expression. And it's like, well, maybe that's not the case, Allen Downs. But then it was interesting because Allen Downs clearly preferred 19th century Russian music and 19th century music in general. He liked his Wagner, he liked his Verdi. And so he said, oh, this is another opportunity for them to continue that thread of opera. So now they can go back, scratch whatever this Lady Macbeth is, and just write a great Tchaikovsky opera again. And so one of the more startling moments in the article is where he actually calls Stalin a man of some musical common sense. 
All of this to say, I think he completely missed the politicization that was happening here of music in Soviet Russia and around the world. So if there's a little lesson to be taken from this, it's generally that even though a composer has an idea for his opera or is trying to claim that it's doing something, it really depends more, obviously, on how it's received by its audiences. Because in this case, the Americans were sort of taken around for a loop, or at least trusting too much in perhaps what the composer said, or what they getting exactly what they believed that Soviet opera should be. It should be something exotic, and it should be something propagandistic. Stalin eventually would obviously leave power, and then the opera was revised by Shostakovich, and he was made into a movie, which was called Katerina Ismailov. It's a wonderful film. Uh, it's severely cut, and as I mentioned, it was revised to make it a little less, yeah, a little less graphic, a little less contemptuous, a little less controversial for audiences. So this is the flogging scene of Sergei again. Katerina, 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 Katerina! Galina was the only person who both acted and voiced, and the rest of the uh, singers, as typical in Russian filmed opera at this time, were actors that were then dubbed with voices. So our next person we're going to talk about is Benjamin Britten. It is interesting to note that Britten did know about Shostakovich and was kind of inspired by him in the 1930s, partially because Britten was a pacifist, and so he was interested in what was happening in communist Russia, which was obviously supposed to be in its idealist way, a more peaceful way to live, which uh, a pacifist would be interested in. And then also Britain was interested in the Shostakovich aesthetic as a composer, because not only was he interested in social engagement, such as making opera for the masses, but he also was a film composer, which was, again, an interesting thing, uh, a new place for composers to compose music at this time. I have this little clip here of an interview from the 1960s where Britain talks, A, about being a pacifist, and then be about his role as a composer living in society. You know, Mr. Britton, I'm terribly glad you're a pacifist, because if I ask you some rather silly questions, you will only give me the back of your tongue and not the back of your hand. <laughs> but you are a pacifist, aren't you? I mean, you're a uh, yes, committed I, pacifist. Yes. Since I was a child at school, I think I have thought that way. And. Uh, in fact, you were a conscientious objector during the Second World War. Yes, yes, I was. I've been thinking about your musical work and to see whether or not uh, that's reflected in the um, in your work, if you're trying to give uh, that kind of feeling in your work. And I think in Peter Grimes' War Requiem, yes. that's certainly true. 
Is that a conscious thing? Um, I believe that the artist must be consciously a human being. He is part of society, and he should not lock himself up in a, an ivory tower. Uh, I think he has a duty to play towards his, uh, to his fellow creatures. Um, it is not only a duty, I feel it's a pleasure too. I want to have my music used. It's interesting just to note his seeing art rather than as something uh, that's, yeah, separate from society. Also, similarly, clearly having this view of it supposed to be obviously for the masses in a way, uh, but we're obviously in a very different way than as was seen with communism. All right. So English opera. What is this thing? Where did it come from? Well, English operas, like Russian operas, were very have been very slow to be accepted to the canon. Was there opera in England? Yes, there was. It was just coming from other places. The English loved Italian opera. They brought lots of that in. They brought French opera. But it tended to take over having any sort of indigenous talent creating English opera in the country as a result. But we did have some fleeting examples. Um, we obviously handled the German, and who also obviously trained in Italy. While he did compose significantly in England, his operas generally were written in Italian, whereas then his oratorio were written in English. So we do have this separation there of having no technically English operas by Handel, although he did compose in England. Um, we also have Henry Purcell, who I'm sure many of you know, who wrote his Dido and Aeneas. Uh, Dido and Aeneas was a mask and at first was not incredibly popular because it was originally, at least we believe, it was written for an all-girls school to perform. And it, it was a mask, so it, it's also a shorter opera. It's, I mean, it's one act, really, and it's supposed to have some dancing within it as well as dialogue and then larger set pieces or arias. Uh, I'll play the most famous one for you, which is the final aria, When I'm Laid in Earth played by Dido when she, when she kills herself due to having lost her lover Aeneas. century there was a composer that composed operas in England. Operas in England weren't even necessarily called operas. They resemble more what we consider operetta. They would have again set pieces as well as arias and then they would have text in between them. And so one of the most famous operas that happened in the 19th century in England which I did get some somewhere else but never laid roots in any other country but was a mainstay of the canon in England was The Bohemian Girl and this is by Michael William Balfe. And we have its most famous aria, just to give you a little taste of it, which is sung here by Jesse Norman and conducted by Edward Downs.
So what's important to note here is that the pieces we've covered, which are some of the most famous in the English canon, obviously have never made their way to the Metropolitan Opera, for example, or many larger opera houses. This is partially because Didonaeus was never really meant for and is hard to make. It's only one act, right? So how do you bring it to a house that's supposed to be a repertory house like the Metropolitan Opera? And then this other piece is more operetta-esque, which only very few operettas ever make it to a main stage opera stage. So those are part of the reasons why. And during the 19th century, once again, we still had indigenous composers, indigenous to England, that is, struggling against this influx of works coming from France and from Italy and also now from Germany. So it wasn't really until the 20th century that English opera suddenly gains this foothold in the large operatic canon at big houses like the Metropolitan Opera, as well as the Royal Opera House in this case. And that is with one of the most famous operas by Benjamin Britten, which would be Peter Grimes. It's interesting to note that I paired these two together and then I sort of realized that they have more similarities than I thought, actually, than just being foreign works in the canon. But it's interesting to note that Grimes is another 20th century opera with a sort of atypical character, one that's not incredibly sympathetic, but at the same time the composer really tries to make this character sympathetic nonetheless. So Peter Grimes is based on a poem called The Burrow, which is by our friend George Crabbe. And so George Crabbe apparently grew up among the sort of setting that he writes about in the borough, which is this poor English countryside, which frankly he really did not like. And that sort of comes out in the way that he represents some of the characters within his story, particularly Peter Grimes, who in the story is not very sympathetic at all. What is in the story is this portrait of a man whose cruelty basically leads to the death of three boy apprentices from his workhouse, and then eventually his guilt over that leads him to madness and then to take his own life. After reading the poem, however, Britton recalled apparently that in a flash, I realized two things, that I must write an opera and where I belonged. So despite this character maybe seeming somewhat problematic and not like it would spark much of the imagination for Britton, it did nonetheless. And so in 1941, Britton started work on Peter Grimes. And then two years later, he actually left the U.S. where he was residing at that moment in New York City and went back to the rural countryside in Britain. So what exactly is Peter Grimes about? Well, it elaborates a little bit more on the sort of snippet I gave you from the poem. So at the beginning, we have a prologue, and Grimes is being tried for having accidentally killed one of his boy apprentices, and he's basically seen by the society as a criminal. But there is one woman among the crowd who believes that there is some good in him, and this is Ellen Orford, and so she wants to help him basically by vouching herself to take care if he gets another boy apprentice, and that's the reason the community lets him have another one so that he can continue his, his business as a fish merchant. So a storm comes at the end of Act 1, 
And basically, Alan brings Grimes, the new apprentice, and the crowd looks on apprehensively because, of course, they all consider Grimes a criminal at this point. In Act 2, very quickly, we discover that Ellen suddenly discovers that he's actually beating the child, and so her hope for him has suddenly vanished. And then, as a result, Grimes lashes out at Ellen and hits her just as the community is leaving the church. And so they all see it and, of course, continue to think that Grimes is a criminal. After this, they end up hunting Grimes because they want to go find him after seeing what he did with Ellen and now knowing what he's possibly hurting this boy apprentice. And with the boy apprentice, they're trying to get out into the wharf or the swells in order to go catch more fish. And while Grimes is attempting to get them prepared, he becomes distracted because of a knock on the door and the crowd that is coming to find him. And suddenly the boy gets lost at sea and another boy apprentice is killed. In Act 3... The community has discovered that another boy apprentice has passed at the hands of Grimes, and so now they are on a manhunt and are absolutely bloodthirsty. We find Grimes clearly hears the the manhunt coming for him, and so he also, and partially probably because of his guilt, he resolves into another into a state of madness, basically. And so we have his mad scene at the end, where at the suggestion of Ellen and Ballastade, which is is another person in the community who generally is friendly with Grimes convinces him to then take his own life and get in a boat and sail away, but really sail away to his death. All right, so as I mentioned, this is a loose adaptation of The the Crab, which is interesting only because also Shostakovich's adaptation of Lady Macbeth was loose and attempted to sympathize with this character. And so how exactly does Britain do this? Well, him and his librettist, they add in other characters from other stories in the book that weren't necessarily in, in the Grimes story. So Ellen Orford, for example, is from another poem. She's not with the Grimes story. And then all of the other people who create the community that's coming after Grimes and making Grimes seem sympathetic because they seem like vicious, bloodthirsty manhunters, they actually come from other more comedic stories in, in the text as well. So is Grimes a hero or villain? Well, Peter Pierce has something to say about this. Peter Pierce was Britain's lover at the time and also someone who worked very closely with him and would end up being the first person to interpret Grimes as well, as as well as many of Britain's other operas. And so what Peter Pierce, who obviously has a very close association not only with Britain, but also with Britain's operas and creative output, he explains to a radio audience before the premiere that Grimes is not a hero, nor is he an operatic villain. He is not a sadist, nor a demonic character. And the music quite clearly shows that. So once again, the music is what's showing us that the character is sympathetic, much like with Lady Macbeth. He's very much an ordinary, weak person who, being at odds with the society in which he finds himself, tries to overcome it, and in doing so, offends against the conventional code, is classed by society as a criminal, and destroyed as such. What we're noting from this is, again, this shift where Grimes, or at least our main character, is becoming sympathetic based on the people around him that are causing him to do these bad deeds. And we see this in this case because Grimes obviously becomes known as a criminal in the first scene because he accidentally killed one of his apprentices. And then he's desperate, as we see at the end of that scene, to regain his status. And how does he do so? Well, the only way he knows how to do so, by becoming a successful merchant so he can buy things. In order to do that, he needs another boy apprentice. And then by becoming a successful merchant, he can then marry another woman in the community, which would hopefully be Ellen Orford in in this case, in order to make him a respectable man. But as we see in the opera, the constant surveillance by the community 
intrudes on this hope that he has and leads ultimately to its failure, at least how Britton and Pierce and the librettists see this story. So who is this community? Well, it's the chorus. And it's really interesting to note that the chorus is a humongous force in this opera, especially when performed at a place like the Metropolitan Opera. When the manhunt happens in Act 3, the chorus becomes absolutely menacing and is frankly overwhelming because they stand all at the front of the stage and basically scream at you, which is musically delightful. I love a good scream, as I've mentioned for many of you listening to the opera, but it's also kind of terrifying. And so by the end of this choral part, they end up screaming the name Peter Grimes, Peter Grimes, and it's one of the most affecting moments in the opera, but also shows that sort of powerful force that the community has over Grimes. affecting when you hear it in the theater, especially in a theater like the Metropolitan Opera where you think, nothing can sound loud in here, it's just too big. And then all of a sudden you hear this chorus and you're like, oh my god, okay, I take that back. So all of the challenges in this opera revolve around this moment of the fall, which happens in Act 2, where the apprentice, while there's a knock on the door because the husbands of the wives who are concerned about Peter Grimes and this boy apprentice want the men to go check on uh, the Boy Apprentice, and also on Peter Grimes. And so they knock on the door uh, when Peter Grimes is preparing to take the boy down to the swells, and of course, at that moment, is distracted, and the boy falls. So all of this ends up culminating in the mad scene, because now, of course, the community is after Peter Grimes, more than they were before, if that's even possible. And now Peter Grimes is not only dealing with the guilt of having killed several Boy Apprentices, but also the fact that he's not going to be able to achieve what he wanted in this society, which was to redeem himself and move forward. This happens interestingly in the mad scene where we have this sort of surrealist moment where we get some recollections of music that's happened before in the community with Peter Grimes. And then at the same time we have in the background as if distilled through the fog is the sound of the chorus and their manhunt for Peter Grimes. 
And then we have Peter Grimes then by the end of this scene interacting with them where he screams his own name in anger at them because they're following him and then starts screaming his own name in sort of self-loathing. So a lot of this, I mean, we saw with the chorus before them screaming Peter Grimes' name and then his, the way his name ends up becoming enveloped in, in all sorts of different ways of expression it kind of becomes interesting, especially in this mad scene. So here we're going to hear that latter part of the mad scene. The recollection, which I wasn't, I didn't show you an earlier part of it, but it's during the storm when they're waiting for the boy apprentice to come, brought by Ellen. They sing this, John goes fishing and Jack goes fishing, but but this sort of jolly uprising tune in order to comfort themselves in the storm. And then we hear here, Peter Grimes will be singing it in his own recollection as well. And the last thing I want to note about this is you'll notice that this movie production that was created stars Peter Pierce. So this is, although he's much older now, it's kind of a very close connection, one we rarely get with the original creators of an opera. So in 1948, Britain told Time magazine that the more vicious the society, the more vicious the individual. And this was sort of his idea about Peter Grimes. And it's interesting just to note that this was actually prefaced by him saying it's a subject very close to his heart and the struggle of the individual against the masses. And so it's then interesting to think about Grimes and Britain and the sort of parallels that might be made between them. One is that Peter Grimes was conceived at a moment when Britain decided to go home to rural England. This was a big deal, partially because he just consummated his marriage with Peter Pierce back when he was in New York City. 
And so New York City at this time was a much more forward place, especially for people who were homosexual. And so he must have had a, probably harbored a lot of fear going back to a rural countryside that was probably more conservative in its views. There's also the fact that he was a pacifist and he was getting closer to the war <laughs> in 1943, which also might have made him feel like an outsider in a place that was very patriotic at that time because they were, again, you know, in the midst of World War II and obviously hoping to win in 1943. And so although he was supported by his community at that time, there always was this fear that if they found out these things about him, they may turn on him. And then it's just interesting to know a little bit more about Britain's thoughts on homosexuality. So according to one of his friends, Ronald Duncan, he actually remained a reluctant homosexual. And according to Pierce, who was his partner, the word gay was not in his vocabulary. The gay life was something he himself resented. So I think it's interesting then to think about Peter Grimes, not entirely, I don't think it should be a metaphor, but it's interesting to think about it in light of this, of a community that's constantly persecuting someone for who they are and like how one reacts and how that possibly changes them. So it just gives us a little more to think about, not that Britain himself said this, and partially because, again, look at what he was facing at the time, but how that might have influenced why he loved this opera, which is an atypical hero, right? Um, and how, yeah, how that came to pass as a result. I do have one more thing I want to note. It's interesting to know that critics have avoided associating Grimes with homosexuality, but they are very willing to latch on to this idea of someone persecuted by society. And one of these people was John Vickers. John Vickers, I'm sure many of you know, is a very famous Wagnerian Canadian tenor from the 1960s through to the 80s. And it's interesting, in an interview he, as recently as 1949, he said that Grimes is totally symbolic and that he could play him as a Jew, you could paint his face black and play him in a white society, but then he would declare that I will not play Peter Grimes as a homosexual because this reduces him to a man in a situation with a problem. And I'm not interested in that kind of operatic betrayal. So I guess I would just want to leave you with this thought where there are many things that people are still willing to accept in opera and, and to use. And at least at this, I mean, now I think that's different. Obviously, we have things like the hours and champion that are on the stage. And it's really important that we have these queer stories. But it is interesting, again, to notice this history of homophobia uh, existing in the late 20th century. That was Guild lecturer Matthew Timmermans discussing how the Met's performances of works such as Lady Macbeth of Mitsensk and Peter Grimes have expanded the operatic canon. This marks our final podcast episode of the season, but we'll return on August 9th with a brand new season. Until then, make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera on your favorite social media platforms to keep up to date on all things opera. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and thank you for listening.